Hello, this is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. Catholic Baltimore is a weekly radio program hosted by the Archdiocese of Baltimore, airing each Sunday following the broadcast of the Radio Mass of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic radio partners for sharing with us some of the content in this program and for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to the Archdiocese of Baltimore every Sunday. This is Chris Conti of the Catholic Review. With us today on Catholic Baltimore is Dr. Michael Pakalik, Acting Dean and Ordinary Professor of Ethics and Social Philosophy in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. Dr. Pakalik counts as his main philosophical influences Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Reed, and John Henry Newman. His main work as a researcher has been in ancient philosophy. He is the author of a new book, The Memoirs of St. Peter, a new translation of the Gospel according to Mark, published by Regenery Gateway, which we will discuss with him today. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. So great to be with you. It's great to talk with you in the Easter season about your book. What inspired you to write the book or to retranslate the Gospel of Mark? I have a desire to put readers in closer touch with Christ. I mean, to my mind, that's the whole center of the Christian life, personal relationship with Jesus. And that's true of Protestants. It's true of Catholics. And I read the Bible every day, I read the Gospel every day, I read it in Greek, and I've done so for many years. And when I read it in Greek, certain things come alive for me. And what I wanted to do in this book is to convey what is alive to me to the readers of this book. I wanted to share that with others. Why do you think that Mark's Gospel is actually the memoir of St. Peter? Well, that was the view of the early Church. In fact, the title of the book, The Memoirs of St. Peter, comes from... um, an early Christian author writing around 165 A.D., and it's used by several fathers of the Church. So um, that's kind of like the traditional view of the Gospel of Mark. If you think about it, Mark wasn't a follower of Jesus in the, in the early years, and he's not an apostle. So why do we have a Gospel of Mark, right? And, um, you know, that it can be traced to Peter, it carries with it Peter's authority, you know, it seems to make a lot of sense. And then... You find um, the Gospel of Mark especially um, has details in it which imply an eyewitness. An example, one of the most famous, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus asks the crowd to sit down in groups on the green grass, Mark writes. And he doesn't say on the grass, he says on the green grass. And you have to say, well, why does he write green grass? And one reason is that he maybe wanted to tell people it's the spring, and there are just six weeks in that part of the country where... In any year, the grass is green, and that's about Passover time, also Easter time. So it kind of places the feeding of the 5,000, which prefigures the Eucharist at the same time of year as the institution of the Eucharist in the Church, which is kind of interesting. But another is that when you say they sat down on the green grass, and then it goes on to describe them as looking on the on the hillside as though there are beds of flowers that are planted there, it's very evocative of the phrase I like to use is what it was like to be there. And this is what we do when we give an an eyewitness account of things. We don't just describe factually, first this happened, then this happened, then this happened. We add details which try to convey, like, what I saw when I was there, what I heard. You know, Jesus says, talithi kum, the the actual sounds when he raises the the girl from the dead are recorded. So I see in the, the, the Gospel of Mark somebody who witnessed things, and who doesn't want to tell us just factually what happened, wants to convey to us 
what it was like to be present and witness these things. And of course, that couldn't be Mark because he wasn't there. Mark wasn't there, exactly. And then there's, I like to say, the subjective story arc. And the objective arc, Mark's gospel is very simple. Jesus begins preaching around the Sea of Galilee. He comes down to Jerusalem. He's rejected by the scribes and Pharisees. Then he's, he's betrayed, tortured, put to death, just as he says, right? And then he rises from the dead. It's very, very simple, whereas, say, in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes down to Jerusalem several times and back, and Mark omits all of that. He keeps it very simple. But there's also a simple subjective or storyteller's point of view, which is the point of view of somebody who is challenged to follow Jesus, keeps making mistakes about Jesus and his authority and, and what it means to be to have authority in the church, or, and has ambitions, has foolish thoughts, and so on. Is, is denies that Jesus has to suffer, is told, get behind me, Satan. He finally seems to get it, and then he says, you know, even if everyone else abandons you, I, I will, even if it costs me my life, I'm going to stay by your side, and Jesus tells him he's going to deny him three times, and he does, and that's pretty much the end of the Gospel. So the storyteller's point of view is one of tremendous humility and weakness. It's a kind of confession of dependence and and need of a savior from the point of view of the storyteller. It's Peter's formation as a leader and ultimate weakness and, and need for redemption that, um, that is on the subjective side of the Gospel of Mark. And we all have that, that need of formation, but also that, that need of forgiveness yeah. and redemption. And then, and then when, you, when you look at the, I have this, I call it the, the problem of selection, and I also call it an administrative problem. So, as the Gospel of John says explicitly, Jesus surely did tens of thousands of things which somebody might have written down and said, this is what Jesus did, right? So why is it that the church has a collection of, say, a hundred stories and just that collection? Right? Somebody had to select out what main episodes or important episodes were to be regarded as pretty sufficient for conveying who Jesus was. And who else would have that role except the universal pastor of the church, Peter. So Mark's gospel is, has a certain kind of force. It exercises force over the other synoptic gospels and uh, because it, it, they, they follow. They tend to follow Mark. It's also a management problem. So you're sending out the apostles throughout the whole world, and Peter's the head of the apostles, and they're about to go their separate ways, and, you know, without smartphones, without Skype and so on. You know, somebody's going to India, somebody else is going to France. They, they don't expect to see each other again. They're going to be preaching about Christ. It has to be the case that three centuries later, the church in India believes the same thing as the church in France. How do you do that? You have to have agreement on what stories you're going to tell about the life of Christ. So I see that Petrine decision-making, Petrine authority exercised in shaping the gospel in the Gospel of Mark. And then this leads to a very interesting uh, reflection, that you're listening to the gospel on Sunday morning at church, and you know, sometimes draw people draw a distinction: the Bible versus the church, the Bible versus papal authority. And you know, Catholics in, in debate are, are fond of saying, "Well, you know, the church determined the canon of the scriptures. The church determined which writings were to count as the Bible or not." But it's even more than that. It's that the church, or let's say Peter, selected what stories were going to be within the gospel as, mm-hmm. out of the ten thousand that were available. So just to listen to the gospel is to place yourself under the pastoral ministry of Peter. And I think, I think that's just a really beautiful and rich 
idea, and the book is trying to convey that thought. That's great. I read the book during Holy Week and the Triduum, so the parts of the Gospel that relate to Holy Week and the Passion were especially poignant for me. Peter's role in denial of Christ, which you alluded to earlier, he seems yeah. to take responsibility for what he's done. Why would Peter yeah. have remembered it this way, and why pass that along to Mark or other early followers in what, what must have been such a humiliating context? Yeah, so the early uh, fathers wrote about this too, and Jerome has some kind of comment that it really shows Peter's humility. Think of what it means to put into writing something that you know is going to be remembered for centuries that chronicles your mistakes. Yeah. And it's an extraordinary thing. Now, you don't really do this so much for another person. The other person may make mistakes about of charity. You don't really draw attention to it. But Peter's foibles are most on display in the Gospel of Mark, and that makes sense if Peter's the source of the stories and also has tremendous humility. And, um, you know, you mentioned Holy Week, and you asked ask why, why I was inspired to write this. It's, you know, we all know that, uh, you know, in the back of our minds, or it's the official story that um, the Gospels were, some of them were written by eyewitnesses. Luke was not an eyewitness. When we do, when we do that, we, um, we kind of forget. We kind of forget what that means. And what, what's interesting is that this, this translation, the commentary, are meant to kind of like smack you in the face with that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that's right. It is really that immediate. This is actually writing from somebody who has lived side by side with Jesus. So it's, it's something that we all know, but this particular uh, presentation, which, as I say, is highly accurate, it really t- is intended to convey that. And, and I'm gratified that a lot of people who have read it have said, yeah, this really does um, kind of hit you and kind of smack you in the face as, as wow, this is somebody who's right now, because what does the passage of time mean? Suppose Peter dictated this in the year 60 and was taken down, and what does the intervening time mean? It doesn't mean anything whatsoever. If it's been written down, then you're hearing it as though it was being spoken in, in the year 60. The intervening centuries amount to nothing. So it's it's meant to bring you back to 60 AD. Yeah, I would say to your listeners, it's a, this book is a potentially very useful evangelizing tool because you'll give it to an atheist friend who hasn't really taken seriously you know, the, the proposition that we have eyewitness report, reports of the life of Jesus. And they'll have to take it seriously if they read the book. Absolutely right. Well, after the break, we're going to talk some more with Dr. Michael Pakalik about his book, The Memoirs of St. Peter, a new translation of the Gospel according to Mark. This is Chris Gunty, and you're listening to Catholic Baltimore. Catholic news from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. Pope Francis condemned food waste, saying throwing away food is like throwing away people. Waste reveals an indifference toward things and toward those who go without, he said May 18th, according to Catholic News Service. To throw food away means to throw people away, he told members and volunteers of the European Federation of Food Banks, including the Food Bank of Italy, which was marking its 30th anniversary. He thanked the organizations for all they do in providing food to those who are hungry while fighting against food waste. You take what is thrown into the vicious cycle of waste and insert it into the virtuous circle of good use, he said. It is scandalous today not to notice how precious food is and how much of it ends up wasted, he said. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. 
Archbishop William E. Lurie was set to ordain 14 men to the permanent diaconate May 25th at the Cathedral of Mary Our Queen in Homeland. The new deacons include a commercial diver, an architect for the Defense Department, a vice president of a software company, and a retired correctional officer. For more on their ministry, visit catholicreview.org. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm George Matisek. Do you want to know more about what's going on in the church and the world than you can get from your daily newspaper or local TV? Read the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the church full-time, The Catholic Review. Pick up the print magazine monthly at your parish or have The Catholic Review delivered to your home every month. You can get fresh news every day online at catholicreview.org. Subscribe to the Catholic Review e-newsletter for twice-a-week updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Find our app on Apple and Android. And follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Wherever your faith takes you, Catholic Review Media is ready to inspire, teach, inform, and engage. Read it today in print and online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. For 143 years, New Cathedral Cemetery has served the needs of the Catholic community of Baltimore and Central Maryland. New Cathedral is the only cemetery owned by the Archdiocese of Baltimore and is the final resting place for many religious orders and famous citizens. 125 acres of rolling hills, trees, and beautiful monuments, the cemetery is an oasis of peace and tranquility and is located off Edmondson Avenue just outside of Catonsville. New Cathedral is dedicated to the task of tending to the mortal remains of our dearly departed and has many more years of available space. If you are in need of a burial site, vault, monument, or marker, or just a respectful location to place your cremated loved ones, our counselors will help you through this process and make sure the wishes of you and your loved ones are honored. Visit us online at newcathedralcemetery.org, like us on Facebook at New Cathedral Cemetery Bonnie Bray, or call 410-566-7770. You are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. We're back on Catholic Baltimore talking with Dr. Michael Pakalik about his book, The Memoirs of St. Peter, a new translation of the Gospel according to Mark. Dr. Pakalik is a professor of ethics and social philosophy in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that relationship between Peter and Mark. We've you know, been taught all, that all the Gospels were written well after Christ's death and resurrection. But you portray that relationship a whole lot differently by essentially saying Mark's account is so close to the source because of the connection to St. Peter. How were they connected and why is that important? Well, I think Mark became a follower of Jesus relatively late in uh, Jesus' um, public ministry. Probably the the boy who's um, captured or almost captured in the garden, and he escapes naked, leaving his uh, really his pajamas behind, the the, the kind of uh, robe that was used for sleeping in. He, he probably his, his house was probably nearby, and he came out in his pajamas for the for the uh, agony in the garden. Um, now that's that's probably the, the beginning of the connection. Um, Mark, uh, according to the tradition, became um, bishop or archbishop of Alexandria in in Egypt, eventually. But uh, before that, he was by Peter's side in Rome, and I believe Peter's date of execution is sixty one to sixty two. 
So um, if he is actually the interpreter of Peter's preaching, then the gospel had to have written, been written before that time. Mm-hmm. Why don't we call the gospel of Mark then the gospel of Peter? I mean, aren't there, are there any other known or suspected writings by Peter that could have joined the canon of Scripture? Well, we do have the two letters of St. Peter. In the second letter, its authorship by Peter is contested, but the first, is, even by skeptical scholars, is, is regarded as uh, uh, from Peter. And it's interesting if you... Um, I don't do that much of, in, of it in, that, in this book, but if you look at the, uh, the letter of Peter, uh, there are lots of interesting similarities between some themes and passages in the first letter of Peter and the Gospel of, of Mark. So that writing tends to corroborate or support the, the thesis. Uh, but, you know, Mark did write it down, so, you know, it, it, you know, in, and he probably played some role in the, in the organization and, and expression of the, of the, of the book. So yeah, I mean it's a legitimate, legitimate question, and he may have finished it off. Um, I believe the, you know, the the ending about the, um, the resurrection was written when he was in Alexandria. So it would be his own contribution. He was responsible for completing the thing, and he would have had to own it, so to speak, as a bishop um, in Alexandria. So um, that would do enough to ex- to explain why it's called Mark's Gospel. We're still reading and reflecting on the gospel gospels a couple of millennia later. What audience was Mark writing toward at that time, at his time? Um, that's a good question. There are, there are enough um, details in the story that would suggest that he's writing for pagans and, and particularly Romans. So that scholars who have you know, discussed this question, once he the interpreter of Peter in Rome, find details in the Gospel of Mark that tend to support that. The Gospel also takes seriously this opening up of the Gospel to the Gentiles. Um, which is an important theme in Peter, as we know from Acts, uh, and and also his first letter. So um, I do think it's I, you know, it's called the Gospel for the Pagans, uh, whereas St. Matthew is often called the Gospel for the Jewish people. I think it would be fair to make that kind of a kind of contrast. And um, there are two things that are really strong in Mark's Gospel: the the the, the astounding miracles, um, wonders that Jesus does. Um, this, this seems to impress Peter um, above all, uh, less so teaching. Right? So there's actually very little teaching in the Gospel of Mark until, you know, around chapter um, 10, 11, then some teaching comes in. The author of this Gospel is much more interested in healings and exorcisms and other displays like walking on water. Um, and we, we might think that, you know, it would be fairly astute to say, well, you know, pagans are going to be interested in that, too. That's going to impress them, right? Uh, you know, unlettered pagans, not everybody was trained in a Greek culture with Plato and Aristotle in the background. It would find that a lot more um, compelling than, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, which is the way John begins, uh, referring to logos, which is an idea from Greek philosophy. Um, so, so, yeah, so there's that. And... Um, yeah, that's that's a very important um, part of the of the Gospel Mark. I, I had a second thought, but it's escaped me. So let's <laughs> let's go on to the next question. As you looked at the Gospel of Mark in a new way, what are some of your favorite passages? What leapt out at you? Well, I really love the chapter of where the three um, displays of mercy by our Lord that are interwoven. Um, he goes across the Sea of Galilee to cure the demoniac, the man who's mutilating himself. He's among the caves and the tombs, and he casts out the legion of demons, and they go into the pigs. And that's the, that scene, uh, which takes place in, in, you know, not in the, 
I think in the early morning, so it's kind of, you know, just dimly lit, uh, so dramatic, uh, begins the chapter, and then it moves towards, uh, they come back on the other side, and, and Jesus is heading towards, Jairus approaches him, heading towards his, his the daughter's, who's, who's on her deathbed, and the woman with the hemorrhage interrupts them. And um, the interruption is, 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 you know, just, it's told in such a way that you have a sense of urgency. Jesus has to hurry. The daughter's going to die soon. Um, and it's like, what's happening when the woman interrupts him? And during that time, the daughter dies. And we have three different uh, types of malady. We have somebody who's possessed and he can't even ask to be healed. We have somebody who um, is physically sick and she, she asks to be healed, but does so secretly. She doesn't do so publicly. And then we have, and she, then we have somebody who has, who asks explicitly, and um, it's not on his own behalf; it's on behalf of his daughter, and she actually dies. So it's kind of three maladies that we suffer from: mercy or pity. This is the same word in the Greek. Is a heartfelt feeling of compassion at someone's distress, together with a, an urgent uh, desire or yearning to to help them. Um, and so you do see this so concretely and so embodied in our Lord in these three episodes, and he really shows up as, as a man of mercy there. Another detail which I like about the Gospel, um, there's, there's so many, but um, and it actually ties in now as the second point I want to make about who the Gospel is written for, is, is the, the author of this Gospel, let's say it's Peter's idea, clearly builds into the Gospel the phase where, after the resurrection, Women come to the apostles, including Peter, tell them about the resurrection, and the apostles don't believe the women, right? And then Jesus appears, and he upbraids the apostles for their hardness of heart. And I think that that's written by Peter with an understanding that this relaying of the, of the resurrection right, by people who don't have any credibility in the world, like women in this case, right? Has got, it's going to be the mode by which the gospel is transmitted. I mean, you have to think about that. That's a very, very strange idea. Like you have, they're not credentialed. They didn't go to universities. They're not powerful people. They're not princes. Uh, they're not even known to be good human beings. And they come and they say, the Lord is risen from the dead. And uh, they are, and it's by grace, but also because of an intuition of what the nature of the hum, human life is like, uh, Jesus kind of expects them to believe it. And um, I think one sees in that little exchange at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Peter's realization, realization of all the apostles, that, wow, this is, we're now going to go out to the world, and we're going to appear to the rest of the world like these women, but this is the mode of transmission of the, of the good news. It's, it's, it, we take it all for granted, and, and faith is bound up with it. It's really kind of an astonishing Idea and that the church has spread to you know one and a half billion people around the face of the world is kind of itself as 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 early Christian self is itself a proof of Christianity because it's it's such a baffling mechanism for for transmitting a religion mm-hmm. and that's a great way to talk about it during the Easter season where we we profess the resurrection and we know yes. the, we know there was a good good ending to the story so. Uh, one last thing, where can listeners get, get your book? Uh, the book is The Memoirs of St. Peter, A New Translation of the Gospel of Mark. Where, where can they get that? Oh, well, if you want to uh, um, 
help Jeff Bezos, you can go to Amazon, and it's easily available on Amazon. It's, you can also get it um, from Regnery Press, uh, R-E-G-N-E-R-Y Press, or um, you know, just go to your local bookseller, authors always say this, and ask them to order it for you because, I don't know, that helps the ranking of the book, whatever. But, you know, the easiest by far is Amazon. Very good. Well, we've been talking today with Dr. Michael Pakalik, Professor of Ethics and Social Philosophy in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America, about his new book, The Memoirs of St. Peter, A New Translation of the Gospel According to Mark. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. This is Chris Brigatti of the Catholic Review, and you've been listening to Catholic Baltimore. Child abuse is not only a crime, it's also a sin. The Archdiocese of Baltimore has long made the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through rigorous training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org. Life can be hard, and at times we feel overwhelmed and alone. When faced with problems, know that there is a group of Catholics who are part of the prayer ministry of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, waiting to lift you and your needs to God in prayer. This ministry is comprised of men and women, young and old, religious and lay, from every ethnic and cultural background. They pray as individuals and in groups, in homes and meeting spaces throughout Baltimore. Like you, they are people who have suffered the same hurts, fears, pains, sickness, loss, and everyday burdens. Learn more about this ministry by visiting our website at www.archbalt.org. If you are in need of prayer, send your prayer request to prayers at archbalt.org or by phone to 410-547-5517. Would you like to volunteer to be a part of the ministry? Prayer ministers are always needed. Please call or email our coordinator, who would be happy to speak with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Baltimore. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless us and keep us always in his love.